We want to be representative of the world's population, and we want to represent the knowledge across the world's population. So if you, if you think about where the world lives, we want to make sure that we have free knowledge available to the people living in that region, in their language, and representative of the knowledge in the world. So how do we create the framework and the tools for the community to grow and be successful? Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hello, everyone. We're so happy to have our next guest, Grant Ingersoll, who's currently the Chief Technology Officer for Wikimedia Foundation. Beyond his work as a founder, advisor, and author, he's also the creator of a podcast called Developmentor, which drives into stories of careers in technology. In addition to that, I am having uh, Mick Wang on my side helping me ask the questions. So Grant and Mick, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mata. It's, it's great to be here as well and look forward to the next hour with you. So let's start with something that I haven't really asked anyone else yet. When you think about your career and your life, what's an inflection point that you think led you to where you are now? What's something important to understand about you? That's such a great question. I think you're, uh, you must be appealing to the math nerd in me. I, I love the notion <laughs> of, of, of inflection points, especially as it applies to one's life. Uh, I think if I, you know, obviously there's a lot of personal ones, but, uh, you know, getting married, having kids, those kinds of things. But from a career standpoint, I, I can really think of two that stand out in my mind. The first one I was, I don't know, call it 23, 24, just, you know, that fresh out of college computer science. And I was living and working in Syracuse, New York, but I was looking for something different. And I went and interviewed down in Washington, D.C. for a, uh, what was that at a time, a web development job. And maybe it was the company, maybe it was the time and space, but I just didn't get a sense from them that it was this long-term viable place for me. And it, it just didn't feel like meaty enough or hard enough, if you will. And so one of the things in reflecting out of that experience for that, looking for that job at that time was this notion that I really wanted to work on hard problems that I wanted to work on things that were challenging mentally to take on. And again, like there's some, it's not quite fair to web development, of course, because it's changed a lot since then. But back then it was primarily, they were asking me to do HTML code at very basic levels. This was pre-JavaScript and modern web and all of that. So out of that, that emerged and really helped me focus and dig in on what became a lot more of my career later on, which is things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and natural language processing. So that kind of trying to be at the edge of, of tech and at working on hard things. The second one, uh, in many ways, came a few years later in deciding to go and start my own company. And I was working at a university, and I think that year the university came back and said, well, we're going to give you your incremental cost of living uh, raise, something like 1.5% for that year. And I asked my boss, well, how do I get, you know, I feel like I'm contributing a lot here. I'm bringing in revenue, et cetera, et cetera. How do I, 
you know, get above and beyond. And the corporate answer was, well, you get your one and a half percent like every other staff member here. And it was just that big epiphany of like, if I'm going to make a change in my life, I've got to do it myself. And from there, launched my own company, uh, co-founded it with uh, several other people in the open source community. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. So those are probably the two biggest inflection points career-wise. Got it. That's super interesting. I have a follow-up question to that, actually. This question actually came from listening to your podcast, Grant, uh, and realizing that so many of the people who you've had come onto the show really took a big bet on themselves at some point. Can you tell us, just like from your like podcast creator hat on, what are some of the qualities of like the pivotal moments of other people that you've interviewed? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been reflecting on this. I'm, I'm approaching my 100th episode, which feels like some uh, awesome. milestone in itself, and uh, which is a little surreal that I've been able to get 100 people to show up. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I tend to see three types of people emerging when it comes to their careers. I think there's and, and again, painting with some broad strokes, there's, there's certainly not like these aren't hard in stone, you're one or the other. But I tend to see people whose careers are shaped mainly by the ideas that they want to work on. And that's always in many ways been my own approach of like, hey, I want to work on interesting ideas. I want to work on hard problems. The second is I tend to see there's people who come forward and it's way, the, the narrative around who they work with is way stronger than the thing they're working on. Certainly, again, nobody on the idea camp, for instance, wants to work with a bunch of jerks and nobody on the relationship camp, you know, wants to work on boring things. But you kind of see that narrative emerge of like, I went to work with this person versus I went to work with this idea. And then there's a third, I think, somewhat smaller contingent of people who are like, I want to have that specific role. Uh, I think you tend to see entrepreneurs in that category a little bit more of, I want to be an entrepreneur, right? It's very important. Like that's been their their narrative. It's part of their identity. So yeah, I don't know if that's getting at what you, uh, you're you asking, but I, I see those kind of as emergent themes in the show around people's careers. Yeah, I, I definitely identify with that. I mean, I wanted to start a company and I remember, the, I remember the inflection point for me was when this professor told me that he thought I could do it. And it was like, that was the moment when I decided. And I think you're right. After that, I didn't become an entrepreneur right away, but it was, so I think it's, it's very interesting the way you've put it. I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's definitely very spot on. Yeah. Well, and like, I, I know like just in my own personal life, I have a couple of friends and family who they, they wanted to own their own company, but they don't actually, they didn't care as strongly about what the company did as long as they thought it could be successful. So like maybe like a franchise owner, uh, kind of thing where they're like, hey, I just want to own a franchise because I want to run a business. That's what I, how I see myself. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I, I've definitely seen, there's definitely two types of entrepreneurs. Some that just want to run a business, like I think I was probably in that bucket, and some that just get so passionate about solving one specific problem. And I have friends like that. I think that's, 
you know, every career is different and everyone has different inflection points. And I think that's what's fascinating about us as humans, I guess. Well, what it gets really interesting is when the inflection point is actually kind of serendipitous. You don't actually know you're in it or it just happens out of the blue. And then when Which you... Is most cases. Yeah. Like oftentimes you don't even know it was an inflection point till six months later, a year later, five years later. If you're really lucky... You can recognize it in the moment, and if it's a downward trending one, you can kind of put the brakes on, hopefully. Or if it's an upward trending one, you can put fuel on the fire, as they say. Awesome. So let me move into the next kind of area. Um, you know, this is a question that I ask on every podcast, and I've also we also ask at every mobile growth event. We do a lot of those, and it's really around interesting growth stories, interesting features, campaigns that you ran that drove uh, a lot of growth that you're proud of. Uh, I thought a lot about this one. I think the probably the biggest one that stands out in my mind was actually at my last company, the company I co-founded, LucidWorks, uh, circa, it, it, it wasn't a point in time specifically, but I want to say around somewhere between 2011 through 2013. And you know, we'd started this company back in late 2007, primarily what I would call an open source 1.0 model, if you remember the open source yeah. business models from from back in the day. And, you know, we kind of had built up a reasonable business. We were doing a lot of consulting. We were doing some support, kind of all the traditional pieces. But it never really was quite getting that. And we were venture back too. I should add that into it. It was never quite seeing the growth like a, you know, like a venture back company in many ways is designed to, to do, but we were, we were making it along, but it, it, it became abundantly clear that we needed to do something different. And so around 2012, I give a huge amount of credit and shout out to my partner in crime at the time, who's still the CEO at LucidWorks, Will Hayes. He came into the organization and him and I really sat down and rebooted this company. In many ways, the company at the time had no right to even be in business. That's so cool. We were cast aside by so many people. Elasticsearch was on the rise. Everybody was on board with the Elasticsearch bandwagon. And here we were, the solar company, trying to figure out what to do next. And it, him and I and the believers in the company, thankfully, had a lot of great venture people behind us, a lot of great employees who still believed in what we were doing. And we sat down and we recognized a trend emerging around machine learning and AI in particular being applied to our space because a lot of our customers were in e-commerce. A lot of them were seeing the rise of Google and Amazon and the like being powered by AI. And so we sat down, we had a really great developer at the time who took a Kaggle competition data set, believe it or not, and hacked it into solar. And in a week of time, we, were, we weren't competing in the competition, but just in our own assessment of where we were, in a week of time, we were number five in that competition just through doing what we would call stupid things in a search engine, just things that were like search engines were designed to do. And we said, huh, I think we're onto something. And so we built that framework into the product and we really doubled down on how do we bring machine learning into the product as a first feature, as opposed to the traditional methods around search, which are primarily keyword driven and, and based off of traditional information needs. And 
we we got a 1.0 out. We did all the typical growth hacking things from there on out, and proud to say we built that up to quite a significant amount of revenue. Uh, I left last year to to do my to do this to come to Wikimedia, but company is still around. And and like I said, in many ways, no right to be, but we <laughs> we focused in. What are the traditional growth hacking things? You said you did all the traditional. I think people, some people don't know what that means. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it is just blood, sweat, and tears. I don't know. <laughs> that might be the traditional growth. I mean, we've got a lot of battle scars for sure. There was a lot of uh, uh, just hand-to-hand, in-the-trenches work, figuring out how to, especially when you're selling in the enterprise, like, you got to figure out how to make this thing work. You're often deployed on somebody else's hardware um, we had to make a lot of promises and then deliver on those promises. And it felt very much like trying to thread the eye of a needle, you know, from a long ways away, but, but we did it and, and we showed up every day and proved out that we could do it. So to me, that's kind of the traditional growth hacking It's just good old fashioned hard work, but <laughs> maybe I'm wrong on that. No, no, you're not. I Definitely, early days of branch were very similar. It's a lot of fun too, but what a roller coaster! <laughs> I think that's probably why you also attract those kinds of people to not only the show, but I'm sure in so many areas in your life. The first thing that comes to mind for me, though, is you said that you know this opportunity with Wikimedia came along. How did that come about? What was interesting to you about, you know, switching from redirecting the direction of LucidWorks? What was the story there? Great question. One actually I struggled a lot with. I mean, LucidWorks in many ways was my baby. I was one of the co-founders. I'd been through, you know, the the dark valley for a long time trying to figure out how to make this place, uh, you know, make it work. And then we finally hit on this growth. And I, I think, you know, one of the things when you're a founder of a company, and it's not talked about a lot, but, you know, you have to reinvent yourself a lot. And I had probably reinvented myself four or five, six times there. I'd done everything from low-level product engineering. I was our first sales engineer. I uh, had the title of chief scientist for a little while even. And then CTO. And even as CTO, like, several different variants of CTO ranging from actually running the whole engineering org, like that version of CTO through to being, you know, chief evangelist, chief sales engineer, those kinds of versions of CTO. And, and then three, four years ago, I led up the next generation of our AI work. So we kind of had that early stage version and then we were revamping it to take advantage of things like deep learning. So getting into that and, it was just starting to feel like it was time for me to do something different, right? Uh, still in a shareholder there, still a big fan of what the company's doing. But I was looking for that next version of personal growth, and I, I, it didn't feel like it was going to be happening for me there. Uh, and so, you know, had a number of conversations with Will about how do I, we do this in the right way, talked with the board about it. And it was really important to me to, to leave on good, strong terms. I think I did that, um, although others can certainly be the judge. But I, I wanted to know that the company was in good hands and a good spot. In many ways, it's like if you're a parent, 
it's when your kid goes off to college. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I definitely, I always talk about this, like how you are a parent to your company and the bigger, like there is a point in which the company takes a mind of its own. I think branch, I always, I'm like, oh, that's a teenager right now. But I think it's not quite in college yet, but I think Lucy Dork is obviously a lot more. Um, <laughs> it's such an interesting hearing you talk about this. I can identify with it so much. Mick knows all my different journey and branch and the different things I do. Well, and company reflects you a lot. And and just like with your own kids being a reflection of you, that can both be amazing and, you know, scary and sad <laughs> all at the same time. And That's so true. So tell us about your role at, at, at Wikimedia. I'm going on 11 months now. You know, it was interesting as I was doing that exploration, uh, the recruiter for Wikimedia just so happened to show up in my inbox. And I could, you know, I'm sure like most of our listeners, the odds of answering a recruiter email are, are pretty low. But for, for whatever reason, this one sur survived the spam filter and I began the journey here. It's been uh, a lot of interesting challenges. I think the very the, the week before I joined, we had uh, one of the largest scale DDoS attacks against us ever. Uh, so that was some education for me. I primarily, having come from the search and knowledge background, I hadn't spent as much time on operations, certainly not as a operations on a top 10 website. So I got, <laughs> I, I had to learn by fire right off the bat of what this operations things look like. So, you know, a lot of the time here so far has really been, trying to understand all that goes into the Wikimedia movement, you know, so most people are probably familiar with Wikipedia, of course, but there's actually quite a number of other projects, perhaps people have uh, heard of Wikidata. They probably don't know, for instance, that we support over 300 different languages. Uh, we have a very vast editor community of volunteers who show up every day and engage with the um, with the movement and create all the great content that we're all so used to to uh, reading as readers and so a lot of just even the the first 10 11 months have been getting to know the people in the movement and the where the where the issues are where the opportunities are where what are our strengths what are our weaknesses uh, and, and really trying to wrap my head around all the moving parts. How interesting. Yeah, I mean, so many different moving parts. And in the process of the past 11 months, for a company that's as well-known as Wikimedia and some of its kind of child companies, what does growth actually look like? There is a lot of different definitions of that, even within the movement, I think, depending on the project. We have massive projects like English Wikipedia, which, you know, have longstanding, well-thought-out processes and means for collaboration and dealing with bad actors and all of that kind of stuff, through to what we call small wikis or new wikis, emerging wikis in countries and locations or ideas that are still nascent, right? They're still at their birth and and they have very different needs, right? Some of those newer wikis, just even getting folks who can make technical contributions to help build out the workflows for editors can be challenging. There might only be a handful of technical people even involved in that particular wiki. Whereas on the big wikis, they have lots and lots of their own workflows already built out 
one of the most fascinating facts I've learned about this place is, especially pertinent to the technology group, is we run a service we call cloud services. Uh, you can kind of think of it like an AWS or, or a Google Cloud where anybody in the world can show up and say wiki things and kind of say, hey, here's what I have in mind. And we will give them their own compute and storage and memory instances, you know, VM'd and sandboxed and Dockerized and all of those fun things. And then they can go build bots and tools, et cetera, that make for better workflows. And this has been so successful that something like 30 to 40% of all edits on the wikis actually come from tools. Wow written by the community. That is so cool. It is so cool. It's also really scary from a security standpoint, I know. but but it's it's amazing. So like growth I think in many ways is defined across a number of different latitudes or longitudes however you want to say that, but at the technical level it's growth of technical contributions, it's growth of helping out these wikis get on board. There's growth in the sense that Traditionally speaking, the readers and editors are primarily in the North Atlantic, so the U.S., Canada, England, Europe, etc. Uh, they tend to be white male, or they tend to at least be male. Uh, not there, there's only about 18% of articles that are on women, or the, of the biographies are on women. So there's a lot of growth on the representation and equity side of things. There's also a lot of growth in terms of reaching other countries and other parts of the world. So for us, I think in many ways, growth is that we want to be representative of the world's population. And we want to represent the knowledge across the world's population. So if you, if you think about where the world lives, we want to make sure that we have free knowledge available to the people living in that region, in their language, and representative of the knowledge in the world. And how do you like actually think about, I mean, you, talk, you, you define growth, but how do you actually, what are some initiatives that you're doing to grow in those areas? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I mean, I think, uh, and it's something, you know, and, it's, and by the way, this isn't just the foundation as a company doing this. This is, this is a very vibrant, I think we have something like 250,000 editors. So these are people who take time out of their day, day after day, week after week, and contribute their knowledge. And so I think first and foremost, we think about how can we make sure the community has what they need, the products they, they use. We, we do a lot of the development on the products, but we also have a technical community that contributes as well. So how do we create the framework and the tools for the community to grow and be successful? Uh, and then a lot of times we just ideally we try to get out of the way and the community can self-govern. We do try to seed things. A lot of it from a technical standpoint is making sure we, you know, it's the classic things we're all used to is do you have access to the content? Is it performant on your device, regardless of what that device is? So we think a lot about different mobile speeds and mobile platforms, mobile devices, uh, besides what we just typically see here in the U.S., which is Android and iOS. So... So, for instance, KaiOS is one of the emerging uh, phone platforms in places like India and Africa, et cetera, and making sure that we run effectively on that. We think a lot about the growth of mobile 
and wanting to make sure that not just the reading experience is good on mobile, but that the editing experience is good on mobile. What's your thoughts around like, and this can be based on your time at LucidWork, uh, but also at Wikimedia, like web versus app on mobile. <laughs> it's like you've tapped into like the all the discussions we all have uh, <laughs> seemingly. Uh, you know, I look at it as there are always going to be a number of different platforms that want and need access to the knowledge that the community works so hard to build. I mean, things like voice clients is another growing medium. You know, a lot of the big voice assistants uh, rely on our data. There's always going to be emerging opportunities there. I'm still waiting for that day when we just get the brain chip implant, you know, Me too. And, and I just have, yeah, I just have Wikipedia in my brain. It's going to happen in our <laughs> lifetime. We might be too old to be able to be implanted, but our children, I think the glasses are first where you'll be able to like just use voice and glasses. Well, you just sign up for it anyways, because, you know, then you can be the, you can be the trial subject, right? So I think, you know, response, you know, web versus native, um, we invest in both. It is a, it is a constant question of ours. We do try to invest as much as possible that we can in our size and use our platform to promote standards. We are a member of the W3C. We, in fact, just did some work on our performance team around performance profiling standards. Uh, Google had started. We had contributed. We have a blog post up on this about some of the work we've done there. So we do try to promote the standards, but we also know and recognize pragmatically that we can't always dictate what everybody else is going to want to do. And so we have to meet them where they are. And that means being in the platforms that our users are on. And I have another, sorry, I'm just like, this is so interesting. You know, when you think about, you guys probably, when you think about discovery, you depend so much on Google. What are your thoughts around, you know, um, I think I, I did a bunch of talks around Google has definitely used, is using their advantage and starting to show more of like things that are actually Google owned uh, versus other types of information. What are your thoughts around this? We try to stay agnostic of what particular vendors are doing. We take great pride in our independence. Obviously, Google sends us a lot of traffic, as do other engines, depending on where you are in the world. Like I said, we increasingly see voice assistance in this. Um, you know, and Google and other companies have been big supporters and given feedback and given used our data, you know, at the end of the day, our license is such that, hey, anybody can go use this, just, you know, share a like, right? And so it's a, it's a very permissive approach to it. And, uh, you know, if, if Google wants to do what Google wants to do with our data, more prerogative to them. Uh, same goes for all of our users. That is, uh, I don't think any of us are going to argue with more people having access to more knowledge, right? I mean, that is, in fact, our goal. I don't know that we have to be the sole so delivers. I guess my question was a lot, a little bit more uh, around like Google doesn't always show independent data and shows data that's owned by Google, usually above things like Wikipedia. And we've seen a trend of that happening more and more. And they've been sued for it. And 
For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, having been in the search engine space for a long time in my career, I'm a big believer in using multiple search engines. The The interesting yeah. thing is, is they're all pretty much on par when it comes to the quality. It's just people tend to Definitely. feel more comfortable with one or the other. Uh, me personally, I'm a big DuckDuckGo fan. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I love what they're doing. I love the story behind them. But, I, you know, like, like I said, I try them all. Uh, I have shortcuts in my browser so I can, uh, you know, the search nerd in me can can try them out. I have a kind of it's a tangential question to what you're talking about in terms of the voice assistance. Um, what has the rate of growth been for something like that that you, you know, can share I don't know, any insights into? Yeah, I don't think we have data per se on specifically like usage of our data in voice assistance, but it's pretty clear when you're using some of these devices that they're getting their information from like, especially Wikidata because it's more structured and more aligned with how you would programmatically access, especially factual information. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's clearly a lot of machine learning driven companies are using Wikipedia and Wikidata and the like to power their their next generation tools and the voice assistants. I mean, you can go look up the numbers elsewhere. I don't have those uh, offhand, but but yeah, I mean, it's you know these things are becoming ubiquitous either via your phone, uh, via your uh, in your kitchen or whatever. Shameless plug for my podcast. I actually had Adam Chire, who's one of the co-founders of Siri on the show and he talks a lot about how he was recognizing that trend early on when he went and co-founded series. So it's, uh, I think you're spot on that it's growing, it's growing like crazy. I think we want that hands-free tether, you know, we don't want to be tethered to a screen, but we still want the information we need. How about, you know, I think we've talked about company growth. I'm curious a little about like personal growth. You've, uh, you know, I almost feel like I want to have a side conversation with you about my role. How do you navigate your role as a founder in a company? I thought that was so interesting. But um, for others that are looking to grow in their careers, what's some advice you have? I mean, your whole podcast is around that too. So advice from you and also like learnings that you can have from others since you've interviewed so many people on the subject. Yeah, it's it's one I think about a lot. I think about how do I tell that story? And, you know, it's a funny one for me because on my show, I often talk about, like, my own approach has been one more or less of guided exploration is how I would call it. Is I feel like kind of, you know, roughly I, I, you know, I went to college expecting to either be an economist or a mathematician. I came away with a computer science and a math degree. So I got one of those, I think, right coming in. But, you know, while I was there, a friend of mine on the hockey team said, hey, Grant, I think you would like this programming class. Pascal, of all things, believe it or not, for our listeners. <laughs> um, and uh, sure enough, I really liked it. It just kind of fit my brain. I had no clue. You know, I always played around with computers, but I, you know, really didn't think it was viable as a as a thing back in, in 1992, of all things. So it was just kind of a serendipitous moment. And I think a lot of these things are serendipitous moments. And so like, I, I try to have kind of some general guidelines I want to work on, like the hard problems, interesting people, uh, companies that have their own, uh, you know, have opportunity. But I don't think hard and fast about I must be at this point at this point in my career, right? I, I, I didn't set out to be a CTO. 
I didn't set out to be a co-founder. Maybe I had a little bit of that. My dad had always run his own business, so I had a little bit of that. But so I, I tend to think about it as recognizing those serendipitous moments and realizing that it's okay to change, that even if you're doing this thing, it's still okay to step back. And that's one of the things I really see emerge on this show too, is how many people come at these careers or these jobs from so many different angles. The number of physics majors who are in computer science or the number of English majors who are in computer science, that realization that even though you spent 100K on this college degree, doesn't mean you actually have to use and do that specific thing, right? Recognizing how you might reframe that into some other techniques. Um, your listeners might want to check out uh, I think James Clear uh, has a really great book on this called Atomic Habits. And then he talks about people's identities are often the blockers to their own career and personal growth. Mm. And so, for instance, like he talks about it in the book, there's an example of he's like many people who, for instance, come into the military, they identify as I'm a Marine or I'm army infantry or, or whatever it is. And he, and he says, you know, the way you might reframe that to be more successful in the long run is to think about, well, hey, I'm somebody who works well on a team. I'm somebody who completes a mission, right? And so you've de-identified from this specific thing and stepped back into the attributes that make you successful in that thing. And then that allows you to reframe. And for me personally, like I went through that with a lot at, at LucidWorks, which was, I am the founder of LucidWorks uh, and instead said, you know, hey, I'm somebody who likes to work on creating things. I'm somebody who likes to work on bringing people together. And, and so I like to tell people sometimes like uh, I lost my identity and you should, too. Because I think it's really powerful to step back from that identity because it's often rooted in a thing that actually isn't your true identity. Yeah. It's just the public manifestation of your identity. Yeah. And if you get at the root of what you actually care about, that's your identity. So for me coming here, for instance, that, that's why this then fit. That's amazing. Is because at the root, I really care about access to knowledge. I care about helping people make more informed decisions. I care about enabling things like critical thinking. I don't have to do that just as a search company or just as a machine learning person. There's so many other ways to do that. I don't have to do that just as a co-founder. That is, I mean, I'm, I'm buying that book for at least two people. <laughs> I think I've had friends who either sold their companies because they failed or sold their companies and they were super successful, made a ton of money. And they went into a very deep depression after that. And I think it's the depression came probably because of exactly what you're saying, this idea that they felt they lost their identity of the founder of that company. Yeah. And I love the idea of reframing. I mean, this is this is really awesome. And, and just for your listeners, like this was a two year process for me. It was very hard. Very hard. A lot of soul searching. I'm at that age where we could call it a midlife crisis too. So I, I'm not afraid to talk about it that way either, right? Because it's not like I just snap my fingers. Oop, here's Grant's new identity. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> because like, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've seen a bunch of people go through this and it just seems like a pretty hard wrench. You process. do see it a lot out of founders. It's kind of the, this un, untold secret underneath the hood, especially when you leave. It's so hard. Thank you so much for sharing and being vulnerable about this. I think 
a lot of listeners. I'm actually probably going to send this podcast <laughs> to a few of my friends who probably don't listen to my podcast in general, but this is, this is really awesome. Honestly, I still struggle with it today as, uh, you know, like I think when you're a leader in a company, I always like to say, you know, nobody's going to feel sorry for the sea level. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a very lonely, very isolating position and it's okay. You know, I've worked really hard, especially since joining probably in the last two years, I would say I've worked really hard to try to build out a network of peers mm, yeah. who we can share this with. And that's so important on this, this question of having that support group that you can go just be like, Hey, I'm facing this thing today. How, how did you face this thing or getting a coach who can help with that? Um, and you know, just that realization it's okay. has been a big relief for me. I tell people that I didn't have a peer group probably the first four years of Ranch, and then I found one. And I tell people I could save my life. I was in a pretty dark place before finding that peer group. So I think big, adv great advice for everyone. Actually, I don't think you need to be a founder or C-level. Finding your peer group can like get you through so much. And realizing that that peer group may be different than you expect. One of my best mentors and peers these days is probably 10, 15 years younger than me. Had I been closed-minded, oh, well, what do they know? They haven't lived as long as I have or whatever. I would have never reaped the benefit from this person either. And so it's being that open-minded. That, again, there's that serendipity, right, that, that I think is so prevalent in our lives that we often ignore. So I, I just want to step in because I'm not a founder. But I would like to hear if, Mata, you were comfortable. You've mentioned how you can empathize with Grant here. Are there experiences, you know, with a fastly growing company like Branch where you've had to reinvent yourself? I did marketing at Branch and, you know, I had to like, there were times when I felt I wasn't the right person to lead marketing. Um, I've also had different, like I was like chief evangelist for a while. My job has, I felt, feel like I've had to reinvent myself all the time. And I always think what, what value do I bring? You know, I'm, I'm very involved in culture. I think like, this is definitely the question that most non-CEO founders and even CEO founders who eventually sometimes step down. You know, I think, you know, Mika, I want to write a book at some point called Startup Monsters. And this is definitely going to be one of the, the monsters, this idea that as a founder, as a company evolves, you have to completely reinvent yourself all the time. So I'll buy that book. Mata has this thought process along the infinite game versus the finite game, like a Simon Sinek book. Um, Mata, I'd love to see if you want to dive into that with Grant, especially since I feel like that's the trail we're on right now, too. Well, I mean, I think Grant already, Grant, you already talked about your mission, right? To make data more available. And it seems like everything you've talked about definitely reminded me of the book of like, you have, I think, if you have an infinite game approach, the identity doesn't matter that much, right? Yeah, well, and, and when when your mission as a community and a movement is that the sum of all knowledge will be of freely available to the entire world, uh, that is as an infinite a game as there can be, <laughs> I think, right? Because And there's levels of inception there and, and, and all kinds of things. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the role and across the org, we do think very seriously, how do we make this be a sustainable movement. We're actually coming on our 20th birthday. It's hard to believe, but Wikipedia has been around for almost 20 years. I think January 13th of next year, I believe. Wow. 
That's amazing. My, my co- communications team could correct me if need be. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but 20 years since uh, Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger started this project. Fun little fact, uh, I have a couple of the very first few engineers still uh, working on the team. They're still here, still contributing at fantastic levels. So I am constantly amazed by the beauty and the staying power of this project. So it is very much an infinite game for sure. Grant, it's been so fun to have this conversation, but we know we're kind of coming up on time. So I want to ask you, in this crazy time that we're living in, this podcast and your podcast is much about growth and a career and growth in life. You mentioned just staying afloat can be growth too. Can you just elaborate on what that means for you? Yeah, you know, part of my soul searching, if you will, my midlife crisis there, uh, maybe hopefully it's only like my third life crisis or something like that. But uh, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe the the, the futurists are, are right and that we're going to live to 150. But uh, I uh, hope so. <laughs> I'm putting my brain into a robot if I have the chance. Uh, I'm, I'm more about the quality. I'll take quality over quantity any day. <laughs> So it depends on on what what it looks like in at a, a 150. But uh, there's a lot of pressure in our society to always be growing, right? And even my own internal model is off is uh, if if you're familiar with the phrase "always be closing" from sales, I uh, forget the movie that was in, but uh, mine's "always be learning," and that's the broad arc and narrative. I, I believe that's an individual human's purpose once they get above kind of the Maslow's hierarchy basics is that you, you sh- you're here to learn and you're here to grow. But at the same time, like it, it's often pressured that you must grow in certain ways, right? Like you must get the next job up the career ladder. You must make more money. You must get more education. And I think, you know, especially things like this pandemic bring to light or things like for me leaving this company I founded, there's growth in other ways. There's there's certainly uh, relationship growth, but there's also just times when it's just okay to say, you know what, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to relax a little bit. Uh, I'm going to explore some new ideas that, you know, that, that's growth itself, but it, it there's not a pressure to then go succeed at it, right? There's more of a just an idea of exploring. And then, of course, there's this the very real practical side of we as developers live in a, a very privileged point in time, right? And there's a lot of people who don't have access to the growth that we have or the, those opportunities that we have. And, and so we need to always be mindful and grateful for what we do have. And, and again, like that can mean taking that step back. That is so, I mean, this was probably one of the most inspirational podcasts for me personally. So... Um really appreciate it before we end though we have the lightning round which is very light and fun and i think will help everyone get to know you better fantastic number one if you had to delete all the apps you had and you only had one app uh left on your phone what would be the app you'd keep does the browser count or no well, the browser, I think, comes, like Safari comes, but okay. if you want a different browser, then that would count. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, the, the choice would be the browser because then the browser can run pretty much everything, right? So uh, I would choose Such the browser. Such a logical <laughs> answer. People have picked games. <laughs> it's a very rational, logical uh, answer. 
Yeah. Um, I guess after that, it would probably be the email client just because uh, that's the way you communicate or one of the communication clients. <laughs> Uh, that that that's very cool, and I think it definitely shows your personality. <laughs> <laughs> very practical. To some of the other people have definitely had very different answers to this. Okay, so if you had an app that you could talk to an animal, what animal would that be? Oh well, I have uh, I have a dog. She's a black lab mix, and I would every day of the week pick my dog because she's just this sweet girl who's been around for a long time now, and and uh, she's just such a good member of our family. I would want to be able to talk with my dog. I love that. That would be probably my answer. But we've had some interesting ones from birds to the tigers in the that. Netflix show. <laughs> it's like, what are they thinking seeing all this craziness around them? I'm pretty sure my dog is just like, hey, where's that rabbit or where's that squirrel I just saw? <laughs> uh, and then lastly, what's the most unlikely mobile app on your phone? Yeah, you really tested me with this one, but I had to go look around. Uh, I think it is Roadside America. Wow. Which is an app that catalogs and makes searchable and findable all of the kitschy little roadside stops in the middle of nowhere that if you've got nothing better to do on a road trip, you should stop and see the world's largest ball of twine or wow. some, some weird trinket that some person put in their front yard because... Why not? Do you have you done any recent road trips? Well, actually, I'm planning one, but uh, my son and I love to, and my wife, we we on road trips every now and then we'll just pull it up and see what's nearby. And if it's not too far away, we'll take a, a little trip to go see the world's largest chicken or the world's largest frying pan. It's totally stupid, but that is so but, cool. No, it's not. I think yeah, it's cool, but it's just, yeah, it's just fun. Kind of like, let's go see how, what, what somebody thought was their hobby, <laughs> you know? Well, with that, that's it for our podcast. How can people find your podcast? Yeah, people can find me. It's developmentor.com uh, without the letter P in there. My Twitter is at G-S-I-N-G-E-R-S, so G-Singers. Uh, that's my old Unix nick from way back when, when you could only have eight characters. So I still carry that forward at Twitter. And then, of course, LinkedIn is, is a great place to connect with me as well and certainly would welcome people to do any of those. Thank you so much for joining us, Grant. Yeah, thanks, Mata. And thanks, Mick, for having me. I really enjoyed the show. Uh, it's, it's a little surreal to be on the other side of the microphone at times. Thank you, Mata. And thanks, Mick. Great to be here. Thanks, Grant. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.